think, well, I can remember when Allison and Matthew and Avis were that big, <laughs> you know, and uh, wearing little lamb's ears and, you know, wise men and things like that, and, and uh, now they're grown up and, and uh, moving on with life, but that's what it's all about, that's what it's all about, and uh, what it's all about. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And as you're turning there, let me preface this with, you know, we've been going through this series of on parables. I was telling my wife when we got into the car this morning, I said, man, these parables are heavy. What I mean by that, there's, there's some heavy... There's some heavy things in these parables. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto. And then it gets really heavy. And so, you know, I just want you to know this is, you know, I didn't write this. <laughs> you know, this is the word of God and it's penned by the Holy Ghost. And the Bible says that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And, and uh, you know, I just think, you know, Jesus and his presentation of, of himself and the gospel or, you know, the word of God as the word of God uh, just was powerful. It was powerful then and it's powerful today, but it was more powerful when he spoke it. And, you know, and I just think, you know, there's some interesting meat and potatoes in these parables if we could just take heed to them. Matthew chapter 22, and we'll read from verse 1. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage feast for his, or made a marriage for his son. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid them or bid to come to, this, uh, to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw that there was a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how comest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then said the king to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. May the Lord add the blessings to the reading of his word, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. The parable of the wedding feast. 
interesting. As we enter into this, I, I, I want to just once again capture the context. I want us to understand the setting here. And, you know, context is always important. Uh, if you look back in, in, in my Bible, it's, on the, it's, it's in the same opening, the same page. Uh, I can look up and I can see uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse 10, let's say, and Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. And they're, they're, you know, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, and so on. And people are just going crazy over him. I mean, you know, the children are, are, are worshiping him and so on. The Pharisees and the chief priests are mad because of this reception that Jesus had just received. They're just, you know, this world is crazy. Also in chapter 21, he cleanses the temple right when he comes in, uh, riding on this donkey, and then he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. We covered that extensively Friday night. He comes in and he just drives out all the animals and he drives out the people and he, he, he's, he's really upset because the, the temple of God had become a place where uh, of merchandise was sold and, and ungodly things that were going on. And so he leaves the temple for a while and... Uh, and, and, and then he returns the very next day. So now, once again, this is the context. He rides into Jerusalem. Everybody's praising him. He gets, he gets off his, I want to say his horse, but he gets off his pony or off his donkey. And he puts things in order, makes people upset. He leaves. The very next day he comes. He shows up again. And so things are very, very tense. The atmosphere is as if you could cut it with a knife. Jesus then speaks three parables. The, the first one, he speaks about the two sons. We covered that extensively. This, this farmer, I'll give you our paraphrase here. This farmer went up and he asked his two sons, he said, I want you to go out into my, my vineyard and I, I want you to work. And, and the first son said, no, ain't happening. I got plans today. Well, he leaves and then he thought about it. Man, that was rude. And so he goes back and he works in his dad's vineyard. And so the dad goes to the second son and he says, I want you to go work in the vineyard. Okay, dad, I'll do it. I'm on it right away. And he never went. He just never went. That was one of the three parables. And then there was the, the one that we spoke on last Sunday, the wicked farmer. You know, the, there was a, a man that had bought this vineyard and he groomed it and built a wall and a tower, all the, the things that a vineyard needs, and, and he leased it out and he went home to a far country, the Bible says. Well, after, you know, some time, he, he, he sent his servant and he said, I want you to go back and I want you to, uh, to receive the, the portion of the, 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 the fruit that is mine. That's just kind of the way they did things back then. I'll let you... Uh, work this field uh, or uh, this vineyard. I'll lease it out to you. But in, in return, I want some of the crop. I want some of the produce. I want some of the fruit. And they beat him, killed some. Well, the king sent, sent others. He sent his own son eventually, and they killed him and said, hey, man, we're going to be heir now of this place. And so he goes back and, and, and uh, takes care of them as well. Judgment day comes. Well, then that leads up to this this here, this, the, these three parables that he's telling the second day that he's in this temple here. 
And so uh, it's a special occasion. That's, that's what I've got it called in my notes. And so I want to I give you briefly this parable uh, given. The king had a son who was getting married. So the king prepared for this special moment in his son's life. The Bible says he prepared a feast. In uh, verse 4, the latter part of verse 4, Behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings, are killed and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. You know, marriages are special. They're, they're, I don't know that they're as special. Well, I know they're not. They're not as special here. And I don't want to make a blanket statement and say that this is the way all people are. But as a general rule, a marriage isn't that big of a deal here as it is in Jewish culture. It's a big deal as we've, 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 we've talked about and we'll get into it a little bit later. Uh, I, I remember when my wife and I, when, when we were getting married and you know we we had a venue a you know different church bigger church and we invited we had our list of guests and everything and and uh it was a big wedding it was a lot bigger than what we anticipated matter of fact a, a good portion of the people came that weren't invited i mean we didn't mind but they had to open up the overflow uh in the church because there was just a whole lot of people that came that night and, uh, <laughs> you know, it was really cool. And, uh, but it, it was all good. We, we had a beautiful wedding. We weren't really planning on it being that big, but it just morphed into something that was, that was a blessing to us. Wow, check all these people out. And the, the reaction from those that were invited was rather strange. Some just simply refused to come. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they were actually very critical or irate. With, with those that came and given the invitation. As we said here uh, of late, I think it was maybe last, or uh, of late here where, well, it was at, uh, on Friday night Bible study when the wedding at Cana. You know, a, a Jewish wedding can take up to a week. Matter of fact, there's a, there's a saying amongst the Jews, let's all go and get married, you know, because it's a week-long festival. They just take, they, 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 they put a lot into it. And, and rightly so there should be because it, it's a very, very important moment in a person's life. And uh, uh, he sent, you know, they, they turned him down. So he sent more servants to try and persuade the guests who can re reconsider and be a part of this wedding feast. And they simply shook off their invitation and they went about their own business. Others took the king's servants and murdered them. I mean, really? Here you have a second group. This king is really showing some effort to, in, in, to this guest list. And they, no, we're not coming. And, uh, and uh, amongst that group, some of them said, oh, let's just take care of these servants so that they don't bother us again. I'm giving you a paraphrase once again. And so they killed them, murdered them. I mean, that, that's, that's horrible. And so the king, he gets so vexed, he sends in his armies and he kills them all and destroys their city. Therefore, the king tells his servants to go into the highways and gather anyone that will come, be it good or bad. It's open. Call them all. I need guests at this wedding. And so the, uh, the, the last point in, in explaining this uh, special occasion was there's one guest that tried to get in 
that wasn't ready to get in or wasn't prepared to get in. And so the king said, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness, into torment. And there he went. And so let me give you the character representation here. The king, of course, is God the Father. The son is Jesus Christ. The servants are once again the prophets, you know, those that are trying to convince other people that, hey, you need to come unto him. You need to come unto him. This is what, this is Jehovah God. You know, all through the Old Testament, we see God, just his servants make, making an appeal to mankind, come on to God. Those invited, the guests were the Jews. It's, it's a Jewish setting here. He's in a, in, a, in a Jewish town, Jerusalem of all places. But when the guest uh, refused, then the, the bad and the good, he says, go out into the highways and the byways and, and bring in the bad and the good. Well, the bad and the good are, is the Gentiles, you and me. Anybody that's not Jewish, that doesn't have Jewish blood flowing through their veins, is a Gentile. That's you and me, regardless of where you were born on this planet. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. The friend that wasn't dressed properly was forcibly removed from the premise. He was bound and sent into torments, which represents judgment. And so let, let me give you the, the interpretation of this parable. And like I said, you know, just get ready. It's, it, it's, it's pretty hefty. God has given mankind every opportunity to receive him. In Romans 2.10, the Bible says, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that works the good, to the Jew first. And so it came to the Jew first, but then Paul says to the church at Rome, and then it came to the Gentiles. They were the first. But because of their attitude and because of their rejection, God opened it up to the bad and the good, which is you and me. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God constantly reaching out to the Jewish people to have a relationship with him. I mean, I, I've said this over and over and over again down through the years. The greatest theme that you'll ever find in, in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it's a book not only of redemption, but it's a book of relationship. Redemption causes relationship. God wants to have a relationship with his prized people, his prized creation. Ever since Adam and Eve, God walked in the garden, spoke with them in the cool of the day. He wanted a relationship with them, and they would reciprocate. Yeah, God, here I am. <laughs> and then one day they partook of the forbidden fruit, and there was a disconnect. There was a fracture. Their relationship was, was broken because they were disobedient. But then it just didn't stop there. God kept moving forward. There was Noah. Noah was a righteous man, and and and. And that's what the Bible says. And, and, and Noah loved God and, and, and had a relationship with him. And, and God would speak to Noah and say, hey, build an ark. Build an ark because I'm going to destroy this world. The judgment is coming. There's always judgment throughout scriptures. Judgment is inevitable. You can't circumnavigate it. You can't get around it. It's always there. Noah built an ark to the saving of his household. Well, then there comes Abraham into the picture. Abraham left the, the Ur of Chaldees. He was, he was raised in, uh, in, a, in an ungodly atmosphere where his father was a maker of gods. And Abraham comes out, and the Bible says that, he, that, that, that God communicated with him and said, Abraham, if you'll just believe in me, 
I'll make you a father of many nations and your seed will be as the sand innumerable and as the stars of the sky. And Abraham took off, never looked back. Joseph, we all know the story of Joseph. And once again, I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture here that God is always trying to reach out to people, especially the Jews. Joseph was sold into slavery. But all the things that Joseph went through, going into prison, all these things that he went through in life was to preserve his family, Israel, Jacob, his family. Moses, Moses brought him out of, of Egypt land. What a man. I can't wait to meet Moses. I'll die if it's Charlton Heston. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but Moses, I mean, what a man. He comes out leading two to three million people. And what's so awesome about the life of Moses when they, when they get up to the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army's breathing down their necks? I mean, literally, they're right there. And there's a, there's a big pillar of fire that God brings, and it separates Israel from Pharaoh's army. And through the night, the wind blew. And as the wind blew, and, and as the, it blew through the night, the, the Red Sea began to part. And the people uh, the, the, uh, of Israel walked through the Red Sea. And as they got to the other side, Pharaoh and his, his soldiers, they, they said, well, let's get through this thing also. If they can do it, we can do it. And, and as they went in there, the, the Moses raised his, his staff over the waters, and the waters closed back up over Pharaoh and his armies. And that's just the beginning. I mean, all the things that God did through Moses, the building of the tabernacle. I mean, that was a, that was a, a, a feat within itself and all the symbolism and things like that that went with it. And then there was David. You know, David was just kind of a guy like you and me. David had a lot of, a lot of improvements in his life, but the Bible says that David had a heart after God. Matter of fact, such an imperfect man, but his heart was so in tune with God that the Lord said his throne is forever established and Jesus will sit on David's throne someday. God constantly trying to get the attention of people. Listen to me. And then there was the prophets. When people are stubborn and don't want to listen, the prophets would come on the scene. Look, you got to do this or this is going to happen. Prophets would put themselves in harm's way. You've got to do this or this will happen. Jeremiah, the Bible says, never had one convert. But he was a prophet. He was a man of God. And they'd, they'd ask him, have you heard from God? And Jeremiah said, I sure have, thus saith the Lord. And they, they would put his hands together, tie him up, and they would lower him down into the septic tank. Leave him hanging there, suspended in waste. After a day or two, they'd pull him back out. Have you heard from God? I sure have, thus saith the Lord. You know, <laughs> today somebody would probably say, no, I haven't. Let me out. Jeremiah kept giving him the word of God, kept giving him the word of God. Why? Because God always wants to have a relationship with mankind, with mankind. Along with God's continual outreach to man, man responded with his own ideas 
and his own methods in order for God to have a relationship with me. It's no longer what God wants, but it's God, I'll meet you, but you've got to meet me on my terms, not yours. God lays out the terms, but man is incessantly tells God that this relationship is only going to work on my terms. No one wants to listen to God or to the call of God on his terms. It's quiet in here. Does the king give up? No, he doesn't. God never gave up. I mean, I just, give, I just gave to you a, 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 a history you know, a, a speed-dialed history of the Old Testament, how God is constantly reaching out to mankind. Matter of fact, God increases the value of this invitation by sending another delegation of servants. Look, they didn't listen to these servants, but I'll send them another delegation. God constantly, constantly going before man and trying to get man to change his ways. Just come. Come to this feast. Come to this feast. God increases the value of, of the invitation by giving invitation after invitation to be a part in the wedding of his son, Jesus Christ. You know, the, the church is the bride of Christ. It's beautiful. And he's going to have a bride that that Paul told the church at Ephesus that is going to be without spot or wrinkle. Matter of fact, this bride is so adorned that there's a, there's a book written about it called Song of Solomon. What a beautiful book, Song of Solomon. Yet there's one glitch. There's one glitch. It simply didn't work. Jesus shows up, but nobody wants him. The chosen people of God hated him because he interrupted their routine in life. During Christ's short-lived life, few, and I mean very few, ever acknowledged him. Unfortunately, they killed his servants as well, and we all know the end of the story, they killed him likewise. Now, let me say this here this morning, folks. There does come a time when God simply draws the line in the sand and says enough is enough. We can play games, but this is no game to God. There comes a time when God says, all right, it's over. Enough is enough. And the Jews have been living with the consequences of their rejection of Jesus Christ ever since. As I was preparing this, you know, a lot of times I just like to sit and write and just try to get the mind of God. And I have, I have some nice resources and so on. But I came across, you know, I've got, I think it's a six volume set. It's called The Works of Josephus, Flavius Josephus. He was a historian. I've, I've referenced him in these parables. I think he was born in 37 AD. And uh, so, he, you know, he's Jew. He was, a, 
he was a, a officer in the, in the army and so on, but he was a historian. And he wrote a six-volume set. I, I have them in my office. And I want to read something to you here this morning. Just to show you that when God says enough is enough, it's it. In, in Timney, they call it ipung. Ipung. That means it's done. Period. Done, done. So, in his, I think it's the sixth volume, fifth or sixth volume, it's called The War of the Jews. Uh, let me just read this to you. I, I printed it off and, and I, I really tried to keep it so that I can read it in a G-rated setting. The actual physical destruction of Jerusalem seemed virtually impossible to Jesus' hearers, and for good reason. You know, when Jesus said, hey, you destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it up. They, they were thinking that he's going to destroy this temple and, and, and so on. And, and, you know, and of course, we don't want to go down that road. But they just, you know, the Jews thought that they, you know, since they were God's chosen people, since they had the exclusive rights on God because God brought them into existence and so on, you know, everything that they did, they just thought they were impenetrable. They were hands off to anybody else. The first century Jewish historian Josephus, writing about the stones of the temple, stated, "Now, this, and, and you can get online and look at this stuff. It's fascinating. Now, the outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes, for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. This is talking about the temple there in Jerusalem. Of its stones, some of them were 44 feet in length, 10, almost 11 feet in height, 15 feet thick, weighing 570 tons apiece. You can get online and go down into the, the lower recesses of Jerusalem and you can see the foundation stones of the temple. Fascinating stuff. Furthermore, the towers that adorned and protected the temple was magnificent in and of themselves. All, all of this had taken 40 year, over 40 years to build, and you can read that in John chapter 2 and verse 20. It took them 40, I think it was 46 years to build the temple. The Roman historian Tacticus was struck by the city's defenses as well. He was noted that the commanding situation of the city had been strengthened by enormous works which have been a, a thorough defense even if you were fighting on ground level. He went on to comment that two hills of, of, of great height were fenced in by walls and within were other walls surrounding the palace and rising into a, a, a conspicuous height, the Tower of Antonia. They say this Tower of just the Tower of Antonia that was on the northeast corner of the wall of Jerusalem, it, just that tower itself covered 40 acres. And within that tower, it could, it could accommodate, you know, like 6,000 Roman soldiers. I mean, it was a massive tower, and this is what people caught when they saw Jerusalem, I mean, this, this huge tower. And, 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 and once again, I call this the untold story in, in history. And so in view of Jerusalem's excellent military defense, 
position with a high elevation and massive walls, Jesus' predictions seemed outlandish. It'll never happen. We don't have to listen to you. It'll never happen. This place will never be destroyed. Again, Josephus goes on, and he's an eyewitness at this because this happened in 70 AD. He was born in 37, so do the math. He was, what, 30-some years old, 33 years old, 43 years old, 33 years old. I was right the first time because this was in 70 AD. In the year AD 70, Roman general Titus besieged the city. I, I, I believe this went from February to August. Don't quote me on that, but it was about five months. He besieged the city in an assault that could, would, would spell doom for Jerusalem. Not only did this siege begin to choke the food supplies, but the problem was compounded by warring factions within the city. Josephus mentions three armies of zealots in the city that fought one another for control. One of their strategies was to burn the supplies of the other faction. The result of this was that the supply of corn that the inhabitants had laid up for such a siege that could sustain them for many years was destroyed by the Jews themselves. So they were in a difficult situation. The famine quickly took hold of the city. A famine so horrific that the details turned the stomach. The militant factions in the city marauded the streets, killing many and confiscating all food as the famine worsened. Upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children and the young men all swelled with famine and fell down dead, whosoever their, wheresoever their misery seized them. One report before the entire ordeal was finished said that the number of dead from the famine was more than 600,000 with many dead bodies not even able to be counted. So much so that the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps upon one another was a horrible sight and produced a pestilential stench. As the famine continued, those dying ate the dead carcasses of animals. They ate the leather off of their shoes, off of their girdles, their shields, and the old wisps of hay. Furthermore, in coming to an end of his description about the famine, Josephus related a story of a woman killing and roasting her own son and eating him and offering it to the marauders as they broke into her, her room. And when they smelled the cooking flesh, they were appalled by the sight of it and they went out trembling. The factions that caused the famine inside the city did, did much destruction that Jesus, so much destruction that Josephus said that a list of the terrible things they did Kit, could not even be written. I read some of those things, and it is disgusting. But because of these men, neither did any city ever suffer. Because of these men, neither any city ever suffered such memories, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world, Josephus says. In relating further instances of suffering brought on the Jews in Jerusalem, we read that the Romans were also responsible for immense amounts of cruelty concerning Jews and that attempted to desert to the Romans. The Roman soldiers, out of wrath and hatred, they would bore the Jews, nail them, 
uh, as they caught them one after another, one after another uh, to crosses by way of jest and would hang them up. The streets were, I've read in history books years ago where the streets were were lined with crucifixes. (laughs) I mean, just lined, the streets were, were, were with crucifixes, bodies hanging on them, rotting in the sun. A lot of them were whipped and tortured, all sorts of horrible things before they died. Other Jews that tempted to desert to the Romans met more gruesome fate. Certain Jews came out of the city. The Jews would swallow their gold so that when they came out of this, they, they figured that if they could escape, at least they'd have some of their wealth in their, in their system and, 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 and so on. But when the Romans found out that the Jews were eating their, their treasures? Yeah, that's what they did. Dissected them. Up to 2,000 of them for their wealth. Yeah, th- this is the untold story. This is what you don't hear. Such instances could be multiplied extensively. In Josephus' summary of the death and destruction of the Jews, he wrote that because the siege happened during the time of the Passover, millions of Jews from all over the world had congregated into the city. A final estimated number of those killed in the few months of the siege was 1.1 million, with another 97,000 sold as prisoners, as Jesus stated in Luke 21, 24, that not only the inhabitants of Jerusalem would be killed, but those would be, others would be taken and captive into other nations. Josephus lamented. Accordingly, the multitude of those that therein perished exceeded all the destructions that either men or God ever brought upon the world. Jesus' description of great distress aptly expresses what horrors were experienced during the fall of Jerusalem. You see, when he's rejected... There comes a time when there's just no more time. God lays the gavel on the desk. The verdict has been given. I'll bet you've never heard that story before, have you? And, and, and trust me, I've, I've really doctored it up so that I could read it. Judgment is so near. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about there. I'm talking about here. Judgment is so near to us, folks. But then, who really cares? Who really cares? The invitation is extended to whosoever, both good and bad. What does that mean? Well, good, you know, the honorable, the upright citizens, those that are in good health, invite them in. But the bad can even be an evil person. According to the the, 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 the Greek dictionary, it could mean a wicked person, it could be a maimed person, it could be a diseased person, it could be a person that is, is poverty-stricken, living the hardships of life. I want you to get them all and invite them to come in. But here's the common denominator. What brought either, you're either a good person or you're a bad person, but here's the common denominator for both classes of people. Now, this is important. They both had to change and put on a wedding garment provided by the king. It was common in that day 
for a rich king to require and provide all his guests with the proper attire. It's kind of like, you know, when you get married, you want all the, the bridesmaids to look the same. You want all the groomsmen to look the same. You know, that, that's the way it was in, in our wedding. And, uh, and, you know, a lot of people do it that way. Not so much anymore, but, I mean, that, it is what it is. But, you know, once again, in a Jewish setting, this is a big, big event. So when the king entered the wedding hall, he noticed that there was one guest that, that stood out from all the others because he was not wearing a wedding garment. Having the man brought forward, the king asked, he said, friend, how did you come in here without having a wedding garment? Or let me put it in my words. Why are you not wearing a wedding garment, even though I purchased it and bought it for you? You remember what the Bible said? He couldn't say anything. He was speechless. Totally speechless. You take our cancel culture society today and mix it with man's natural selfish desires and you will have a people that are going to do things their own way regardless of what God has to say. Regardless of what I have to say. To not come in a wedding garment, which is analogous to salvation, is to try and come in in your own way. And I'm here to tell you, 2,000 years later, it just ain't gonna work. It didn't work back then, it's not gonna work today. At salvation, a, per a person receives a spiritual garment of righteousness. Not your own righteousness, because Isaiah 64 and 6 says, for our righteousness is as filthy rags. We're all as an unclean thing. That's our personal righteousness. But a garment of righteousness, the moment you get saved, God clothes you with, with righteousness. The righteousness that I have right now is imputed righteousness. It was given to me. It's not of my own, but it was given by God. I am a righteous individual because of what God has done in my life. David said, he's the God of my righteousness. Before I got saved, it, I was nothing, unrighteous. But when I got saved, he clothed me. He clothed you in righteousness. Amen. And it was provided by him, the king. The man without the wedding garment was speechless. And this is exactly how man will stand before God on judgment day. Speechless. No excuse. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot. Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As Hannah comes to the piano this morning, the last verse is what 
ought to make you about as sober as you can ever get in life. For many are called, but few are chosen. What does that mean? You can start out yielding to his call for salvation, but because of your lack of interest for him, you're simply not choosable in the end. Years ago, when Debbie and I were in Bible school, they had what they call an alumni convention. And the alumni from the school came and and they had alumni services and and Debbie and I are just students and I haven't been saved but a couple years. And I remember this, they were asking for testimonies from the alumni and you always think that somebody's going to get up and they yeah, God's doing this for me and, and uh, I've got big ministry and, you know, and praise God. You know, I, I don't, maybe I'm taking that too far, but they get up and they give a positive testimony. Let's put it that way. But there was this one man, this one pastor that stood up. He was an evangelist. And he stood up, and I'll never, I can still see the guy's face. And he said, the doors have closed for me to preach. He was a pianist. He, he sang. Very talented evangelist. And it, be, it, it began to bother him. And so he asked the Lord, he said, Lord, you've called me to be an evangelist. You've given me gifts and talents to, 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 to be an evangelist. Why am I not using this? You've called me. And that preacher stood there and he said, this is exactly what God told me. Yeah, I've called you, but you're no longer choosable by the way you live your life. I can't use you anymore. I'll never forget that. Never. He simply wasn't choosable. Many are called. The Jews were called. They were the people of God. The children of Jacob, Israel. Abraham. They had a, a posterity that was second to none. All those things, all those important people, and I just give you about five or six of them through the Old Testament, that's who they're all affiliated with. That's where they all came. That's all, all those people flow through their blood veins and so on. They were called out to, to be a nation, to, to make an imprint in a, in a world as they went forward. But when Jesus shows up and, and tells him that, hey, I'm the, I'm the son of God, they hated him. As Nathan read this morning in his narrative, if you don't like me, then you don't like my father because I and the father are one. You can't separate us. Let me close with this. As surely 
And as accurately as Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem, he has foretold that his second coming and the judgment of humanity is still in the balances. I read to you the untold story of a people that rejected him and what happened to them. Let's all stand. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. It's a good word. It's a heavy word. But Lord, there's a lot that pulls at us in life today. There's so many things that are gnawing at us, trying to get us to to loosen up in our relationship with you. I experience this, Lord, just almost on a daily basis. There's always something that comes up. There's always distractions. There's always something that tries to keep me from you. It takes a concerted effort to prioritize a person's life and focus on, on Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that as you gave this parable of the wedding feast, it happened once before and to a people that rejected you, but it's gonna happen again, only but it's gonna happen to us, it's gonna happen to the Gentiles, it's gonna happen to mankind once again. Help us, Lord, to take these words that you spoke to heart and be the best that we can be. You might even come today. Today. In Jesus' name. Amen. The altar's open. You're welcome to come. Thank you so much.